This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have a great friend of mine, uh, Alex Begum. I've known Alex uh, his whole career. I saw him get out of law school and just start a firm with a couple friends right out of the box. And I've seen him over the years uh, develop as a trial lawyer, and at the same time develop his firm from just three guys that just got out of school to multiple offices in multiple cities, multi-million dollar ad campaigns, incredible success, and I thought it would be useful to share you know, how he did it. So we're going to talk about his story and how he did that, um, how he both tries cases and keeps getting better while running a law firm successfully, and uh, some of the books, especially a book called Don't Eat the Bruises by Keith Mitnick that's really helped him uh, learn and apply things. And finally, a, you know, a hot topic, something that we've been doing in our firm and he's had great success with is not using your medical bills at trial, uh, not trying the case without the past medical. So I hope uh, you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoy talking to Alex. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have a good friend of mine. Uh, he's a rare combination of being a great lawyer and a great businessman, uh, Alex Beacom. Alex, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good, Mike. Thank you. So people that know who you are, and at least people in Texas know you, you've got a big practice, multiple cities, uh, lots of advertising. Uh, you also try cases and do well. I want to talk a little bit about how you, you didn't start that way, like how you started and how you kind of built up. Yeah, so I didn't really know that I wanted to be a lawyer even after I graduated from law school. I didn't, I didn't know any lawyers. My, my parents really didn't uh, hang out with lawyers. And I guess in retrospect, that was a good thing because it forced me to uh, pursue an MBA at the same time that I was getting a law degree, thinking that if I didn't like law, I would have the fallback of a of a of an MBA in finance, and my undergrad was in finance. And so, um, you know, looking back at it, I think that one of the things I was able to do is bring a business perspective to the practice of law, and that for me made it very challenging and very rewarding. That in a sense, I was able to you know, pursue my passion in business and finance. And that's kind of what I had focused on early on in my career as, as a student, uh, and then kind of bring both of those things together over time. Yeah, well, the IRS definitely considers us in the finance business because they say everything we spend on cases is a loan to the client or investment. We can't deduct from our taxes. Yeah, so I mean, it's, uh, that, that's just one of the craziest things. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, you can spend $2 million on expenses in a year, make a million bucks and still have to pay you know, a million dollars in taxes, you know, or... or yeah, everything you make. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. But it's still law, so we just got to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, so talk about, you get out of law school then, you've got your MBA, you've got your finance degree, I'm sorry, your law degree. Yeah. Uh, what do you do first? Well, um, so I, I had two friends that were uh, 
a few years older than me, and I, I'm the one that kind of brought them together. And both of them, uh, one of them was Beto Tijerina, who had been at Cox and Smith here in San Antonio back when it was Cox and Smith. And then David Willis, who had graduated about a year or two before I had as well. And I kind of brought them together and said, guys, let's, you know, let's, let's go to the Brownsville and, and let's just open up shop and see what happens. Um, and I, one of the things that I had done in, in law school is they had forced me to do a business plan. And I thought that was a, kind of dumb at the time, but in retrospect also, it was one of the greatest things that they forced me to do in law school. And so I said, look, I've got this business plan and uh, I really think that I can bring some of my financial know-how into this practice uh, of law and let me do the financing and the admin and, and let's open up our doors and see what happens. And, and that's what we did. So was it just a booming success from day one? Oh, yeah. All <laughs> right. So at the time, I turned down a job that had offered me uh, $70,000 a year starting. And it was at a defense firm in Amarillo. And I'm, I'm sure I would have been... <laughs> I'm sure that uh, that life would have taken me in a whole different direction. But, um, you know, we started in our first year, we each made... Uh, I want to say $29,000. And our second year, we all made somewhere in the in the area of $50,000. And our third year, it was right under eighty or 90000 And so we didn't break the $100,000 mark until I think it was year four or five. Uh, so it definitely did not come easy at all. I guess, but you learned lessons doing that and eventually make a little bit more than that yeah uh, how did you go what, what kind of work were you taking when you first started so when we first opened our doors it was anything that we could uh bring in the door i mean literally we did things like child custody and divorce and criminal and corporate and luckily david willis really liked criminal and civil and so he handled that. Umberto had done a lot of transactional work, and he was very competent in that area. And so we did a lot of transactional work. And I did. I just kind of found a niche in family and in um, little civil cases like small car wrecks or slip and falls that would come in the door also. And you eventually transitioned to uh, pretty much all personal injury. Yeah, so it was interesting, you know, um, uh, you probably know Trey, Trey Martinez pretty well and, and Tony Martinez down in the valley. And it was interesting how I got my start in really doing car wreck cases, and it was first as a defense lawyer. And the way that worked is he had a client who owned several uh, managing agencies, uh, these cross-border policies that they were selling, uh, the Villarreal brothers there in, in the valley. And... One of the Villarreal brothers was being sued uh, by an ex-employee. And Trey and Tony were representing them, and they had some kind of conflict and said, hey, can you help this guy out? And so we got the case, and I looked at it, met with him, and we actually filed counterclaims against the employee. And he said, look, what I'm not going to do is pay this guy any money because of all these reasons. And so long story short, we went and tried the case there in Janet Lyle's court. It was a week-long trial, and we got a $75,000 verdict against the plaintiff oh, wow. in the case. 
And he really liked what he saw. And, like, the next week he said, would you all mind doing car wreck defense for, you know, I'm a, I'm, I own managing general agencies. And we said, yeah, sure, we'll take some files. We worked out some terms. And, like, two weeks later uh, a van shows up with, like, 80 boxes. <laughs> oh, my God. And these were cases that were in pre-lit stage, the middle of litigation. He basically had – fired a firm and given and, and directed that firm to send us all of the cases. And so we just kind of jumped into it. And David and I really handled that that litigation for about, I would say we handled those cases for about two, three years. And uh, it, was, it was work that I wasn't very happy doing. And I saw that uh, lawyers who were on the plaintiff side who were not very effective or good um, or getting paid money. And I said, you know, I'm on the wrong side of this deal. And so what what made you pick the PI field as opposed to the other kinds of, of cases you had to specialize in? So I, I think it was a combination of, of several factors. One is I saw the, the, the limitless potential in the PI world. Uh, versus other kinds of law where you're capped by hourly limitations on a day or, um, you know, the, the idea of doing, you know, mundane, uh, you know, transactional work is just something I couldn't stum- stomach. And then I was exposed to family law, and I hated doing family law. Me too. Yeah. And so just by a, a process of elimination, I said, this is really what I like doing. After having been exposed to different practice areas and then seeing the potential in it, uh, I said, you know, this is really somewhere that I want to focus in. And, and really my background um, with my father being a, an immigrant into this country, kind of always being someone that beat all odds, kind of the little guy, you know, um, he always uh, raised me uh, in such a way to fear, you know, kind of the big guy, the corporate interest. Uh, he hated insurance companies for lots of different reasons. And, and so uh, I think a lot of that upbringing also, um, learning about my father's family and the Holocaust and everything else, just, it just felt right that I was representing people that had been victimized in some way. And so how did you go from someone that had maybe done some defense work, kind of a few little ones, to becoming someone that was good at handling personal injury claims? So I tried, I tried about half a dozen um, defense cases, and, and we were pretty successful doing that. And then what I started doing was going around knocking on lawyers' doors and saying, I really want to focus in on this. I used to do defense work, and that kind of buys you credibility. Yeah. And it says, you know, this guy's been around. He knows how to handle these cases. And there was about three or four lawyers, one in particular, uh, Abel Toscano. I don't know if you ever heard of him there in yeah. the Valley. So Abel, at the time that I was kind of going into this, was um, shutting down his doors. He was having some health problems, and he had a ton of files. And he said, Alex – these are all the files that I can't resolve. And he said, have any one you want or all of them. And we must have taken 40, 50 files uh, of cases that had been there, some of them for three, four years that had been filed, but kind of no follow-up. And I just went and tried a bunch of cases, uh, little ones, and I lost some, and I won some, and I hit some out of the park. And it was a lot of fun. And 
after doing that for a while, you know, you just kind of get known for, hey, this is a guy that's doing a lot of PI, right? And and it makes it easier to get uh, business in the door. So you're getting the business in the door. You're, you know, you're getting trial experience. Is there anything you did besides just trying cases to go and learn and get better? And what have you done there to, to improve yourself? Because you've gone from no, knowing nothing about it to being really good at trying them. Yeah, I, I think that several big things happened to me. And the first one is I, I had some really – uh, good mentors that I reached out to, and I, for example, Ed Stapleton, my uh, old boss, yeah, yeah, and you know, Ed, I, I went up to Ed and said, "Hey, Ed, can you come try these cases with me?" Uh, one of the some of the first few ones that I tried, and Ed and I must have tried eight or nine cases together, uh, and and we would literally split the work fifty fifty. Right? He never was the kind of person that said, "Hey, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna take over this case." He would just go in there and try them with me. We had a ton of fun doing it, and I learned so much from Ed. Uh, and Ed's really the one that said, hey, you know, you really have to go and uh, learn the Jerry Spence method. And he's the one that got me interested in going to the college. and The so, trial lawyers college. The trial lawyers college. And so then I went to TLC. Um, and uh, I, I continue to always, and even today, you know, I, I, I'm – I'm always looking for the best seminar and for the best techniques that I can pick up. And I'm always willing to learn. And I'm reading a lot about all kinds of uh, different areas in, the, in our world of PI psychology books that I think maybe have some kind of overlap with, with picking juries or presenting uh, trials. And, and through the years, you know, we've had these great pioneers in our, in our line of work like Guys like David Ball and Rick Friedman um, that have been putting out some amazing research, um, you know, in terms of, of really approaching our field from a very psychological uh, way of presenting our cases to juries. Uh, Don Keenan is another one that I think is brilliant. Yeah, I think right now is one of the best times to become a trial lawyer because. You know, when I started, I mean, there's a trial lawyers college and that was good, but most of the really, really great trial lawyers, I mean, they kind of kept, they'd speak every now and then, but they kind of kept a lot of it to themselves. They might not even have known why they've won. There's so much great work going on right now and it's and it's being offered out there. I mean, there's so many people sharing and teaching, uh, you know, what they've learned, what they know. You know, trial guides came up and there's just the, the amount of good literature coming out there on how to do this stuff. Uh, the amount of research being shared is just, I think, unique. It's never been like this before, so I think. Yeah, and, and I think we've realized as a profession that if, if you know, 90 95% of us are being kicked around at trial, that it's affecting uh, the, other, the other 10, 15% that are actually doing well at trial. And, it, and that is that as a profession, whether it's, you know, regional, in a certain part of Texas or the state, if as a profession we all do better, we all pick ourselves up, and we all start fighting against some of these tactics that insurance companies want to use to drive down value, uh, we, I think at some point the profession itself realized, hey, we're helping ourselves by helping others. Yeah. So what do you think right now some of the better seminars out there are for someone wanting to learn how to be a great trial lawyer? So I really think that the research behind the reptile is fascinating. 
and I'm not saying go and ingest it and, and accept all of it, but there's some really powerful things in there. Um, if you haven't read, you know, Rick Friedman's Rules of the Road, I think you're doing yourself a huge disservice. I totally agree with that. Um, there's a great book, and I can't remember the author. You're probably going to correct me on this, but Don't Eat the Bruises. Yeah, Keith Mitnick. Keith Mitnick. I think that is a revolutionary book. If you don't do anything else in that book, the most amazing, valuable thing from that book is just the chapter on the terminology, what words to use in a trial and what words that you should never use in a trial. Yeah, the two phrases, one picked and paid for, yeah. for the defense expert, and doubt is not an out for preponderance of the evidence. I have made so much money off those two phrases. I mean, that book has been worth 1,000, 2,000 times what I paid for it. Oh, absolutely. And, and anybody that, that is, you know, just and just visualizing, for example, the word injury which i used to use versus the word damage and so when you use the word brain injury or you know an injury of the spine the the word almost implies that there's going to be a recovery right you know whereas you say brain damaged or spinal damage that it it that those words are permanent you know they they imply permanency and so those kinds of, of words, terminology, what to use, what not to use, even basic ones. I see, I see lawyers in our profession making this mistake all the time. You know, they go into a trial and they're calling the accident an oh accident. Oh, my gosh, I hate that. You know, uh, I've seen my associates using that word in, in, in depositions, and I cringe. You know, you're implying that there was no way to prevent it. It's, not, it's a non-preventable event. Um, you know, part of what I do now on these cases is I depose the cop. And, and I've, I've talked to cops that are in police academies, and now I use this. Um, they te I tell the cop, hey, does, does the word accident appear anywhere on this crash report? No, sir, it doesn't. And why isn't that? And they actually tell you it's because a, a, an accident means that there's no contributing factors. A crash means that someone was responsible. Yeah. And the cop is telling you that. And so then when the defense lawyer starts to use the word accident, I just completely turned around on them. I said, you know, words matter and being truthful matters. And the defense lawyer is trying to use a word that's not even on this crash report, you know. Uh, and even the, the defense lawyers, after, after getting beat up a little bit, start using the word crash. Well, that's awesome. You know. Which yeah. is a mistake on their part, by the of way. Of course. <laughs> of course. One thing you've done uh, – recently and had some real success with is not putting in the medical bills at trial tell me about that yeah so you know that was really one of the scariest things i've ever done as a, as a trial lawyer and i remember and i've got to give you credit mike first right because you're the one that tried it before a lot of us had had ever tried that um and what we had been seeing is we, we were going in in some of these cases with fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars in medicals, and you know we were really anchoring ourselves down uh, to an award in or around that range or two times that range. And even then, you thought two times meds was a great victory, right? But no, <laughs> but absolutely not. And what we saw, and I'll and I'll tell you, I, I give you credit for trying it, but. I went to a seminar for uh, Mark Lanier. Yeah, because I didn't come up with it. I copied other people. Yeah, yeah and, and I had actually heard it at Mark Lanier's seminar. I think you and I actually had emailed about it because yeah. I was at the seminar, and I said, man, you know, I just saw this great seminar. And it, I can't remember the name of the law firm, but it was a law firm in New Jersey. And Mark Lanier actually invited him to go and, and speak. At, and 
this law firm basically went out and did a test study and they said let's do full-blown mock trials where we hire a real defense lawyer to try the case and we're going to try it two different ways we're going to try this exact case exact arguments and we're going to present and and submit our medicals on it and then we're going to do the exact same case but without medicals and see and we're going to have two panels in each mock trial and the the response and the results were were staggering on the trials where they didn't submit medicals you know the verdicts were you know high six figures and in one case in one panel seven figures on a case that you you know you would have been happy with 40 grand usually in our old mindset the other thing that that and i and i'll tell you that i've i've tested this and i've had three or four trials so far and my my associates have had uh, another two or three trials so we've we've tested it about seven times and knock on wood we have not been poured out yet and every single case we've we've had you know high six-figure outcomes on meds as low as four thousand five thousand and uh you know in medicals why do you think that is there i think there's a there's a lot of reasons for one it focus it it really turns the focus of the lawyer the plaintiff on value driving uh, damage uh, elements and so for example if you don't have to argue about medicals you're forced to then put on evidence about past and future pain and suffering and past and future impairment because that's really the only four things you got left and how do you get there well we get there not only through uh, client testimony but we get there through you know what I like to call uh, moaners, groaners on behalf of the of the plaintiff. Friends, family, coworkers. Absolutely. Everybody else proves up your damages for you. And I'm really careful, and this is something that I learned from, from the Jerry Spence College, is we really want to present a 360-degree perspective of how this man's life or woman's life was affected. So we get someone that gives us the perspective from work, the perspective from time with the family, the perspective with them giving back to the community in some form or fashion, whether it's at church or at some other organization that he or she used to volunteer at, and they can't do that anymore. And then from the perspective of the personal hobbies and things that were important to that individual and how every single aspect of their life was affected without doubling up on any one area, because that also gets a, to be a little burdensome yeah. uh, for the jury. And, and so it focuses you to really, really, you know, uh, spend a lot of time on the value drivers. It also takes out the stink of whether you have a paid versus incurred issue or whether the lawyer and, and the is, doctor. It's all 50 states. So what's the paid versus incurred issue? Oh, I got you. So, <laughs> you know, in Texas, it used to be that someone went to the hospital. The hospital would bill $30,000. You could go in and present the $30,000 bill. Uh, now, if there is a, a Medicaid or Medicare payment that brings down the $30,000 bill to, say, 3000 bucks, now all we can do is present the $3,000. And now they're even trying when there's not any health insurance and your client's stuck with a $30,000 lien presenting evidence that it should have only been 3000 the hospital's overcharging. And, I, you know, medical billing practices are so inconsistent and you know, it's just like an Alice in Wonderland type. Uh, world when you try to get into how they come up with their bills, the prices of them. I think that 
the more we're not having to defend medical billing practices, the easier it is to try a case. For sure. I mean, it, it, in Texas, at least, I think we're, da- we're, we're going down a really bad slippery slope. Uh, you know, I think that the, the hundred plus year rule of collateral source, uh, if it's ever been in jeopardy, it's now in our environment. And uh, whether you like it or not, I think that trying cases without medicals are going to become uh, more and more frequent by necessity if not so much uh, by choice. I think ironically the effect of all that is we're going to end up with bigger recoveries. That's right. I think we are. Now it's going to also, you know, for the large volume practices, the downside is that a lot more cases are going to have to be tried. For a while. And then I think then values will get reset. I think that's right. And you you think so at least. Yeah. Uh, But uh, the other thing it does is it takes out you having to argue for, you know, a $5,000 bill. I mean, you spend so much money, time, and effort, and then you get into questions like, doctor, you know, how many clients have you treated, Mr. Begum, if, if some judges allow that, or, you know, your LOP practice, and what is an LOP? And an LOP is a letter of protection. That's where uh, the doctors are agreeing to wait until the end of the case to get paid since the client doesn't have another way to pay them. Right. And some judges allow defense lawyers to pervert that and, and turn it into, well, you're tied to the case because if there's no recovery in trial, right. uh, then you don't get paid. And so, you know, you're being influenced. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, that testimony should never see a lot of day. But depending on what jurisdiction you're in, you know, those are the kinds of arguments you'll hear. And the no medical model of trying a case eliminates all of that stink. I mean, it, it just gets out of the case completely. It also takes the defense out of where they like to be, which is trying to make us the villain, fighting over the doctors and the lawyers, trying to gin up medical bills, and puts it into where they're uncomfortable, which is what the real human effects of what they've done to our people. That's right. And the jurors that are back there that want to fight for you, that want to fight for your client, you know, after, if they even get to awarding you your bills, they're so tired, they're so worn out just to get you there. But by the time they get down to the other elements of, of damages, uh, you know, they, they've already kind of used their chips, so to speak, against those bad jurors that didn't want to give you anything to begin with. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm, I'm all for it. And, you know, there's still cases where the bills are high enough where I'm not brave enough to not put them in. But uh, more and more, I mean, we even have a case with $280,000 in medical bills that we're really thinking about not putting them in because it's in a jurisdiction where the defense is going to be able to argue, well, this one pain management doctor charged 135000 uh, maybe this should only be 30. Uh, and if they're allowed to get into that argument, I think my jurors then are fighting me to get 280, not fighting to get me 4 million, 5 million. I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, I've seen, and I've seen very good lawyers. I, I walked into a case the other day in Cameron County. It was a, it was a med mal case. And I actually heard a lawyer put up uh, evidence of a funeral bill. Oh, wow. You know, like, like really, you want to you want to get a ten thousand dollar past funeral bill in, in front of a jury? Yeah, I mean, it makes absolutely no, no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it almost tells them you don't believe your case is worth millions, or why would you bother with the ten grand? Right. And it also anchors down. Once you have one small number, it can anchor everything else down. Yeah. One thing that's kind of unique to your practice is I see most lawyers that run a firm as big as yours. Uh, you know, you do a lot of advertising. You bring in a lot of work pretty much just run the practice and the service like the face of the firm you actually get in there and try cases i do how do you do that 
Well, it's difficult. Um, you know, I would say that the admin part of my practice probably takes 50, 60% of my time. Um, and there's no way I could, I could do the trial work without really great associates and really great teams uh, that know exactly how I like things, uh, know exactly how I want things set up before I have to go and take a big depot uh, or go in and try a case and get ready for a case. A lot of that work, uh, you know, has been done. I also feel very strongly about this, that if I'm going to go on TV and put out my face and say, you need to trust me and you need to hire me to do something, you know, I feel strongly that I need to deliver. Um, I, you know, and, and I'm not faulting them. I mean, look, business is business, but there are lawyers that are major advertisers that have never tried a PI case. Um, and I think that there's something hollow about that. And, and I want to be able to look people in the face and say, hey, you hired me, you saw me, and I'm going to be the one that's going to give you the results. So how do you manage your time? I mean, do you have any kind of internal like rules for yourself or something on how you, you know, make time to both do the administrative right so the firm doesn't fall apart and everything keeps running right and to dedicate the time it takes to get ready for trials? Well, I, I wish my life uh, was that organized, right, where <laughs> I can sit down and say I'm going to spend 25% of my day on this and 75% of my day on that. But the reality is that you just have to deal with with things as they come at you and, pri and try and prioritize as best you can. Um, and so I usually am handling, you know, some of the bigger files in, in our office uh, in terms of taking expert depots, uh, big hearings, uh, you know, outcome determinative uh, type hearings. Um, and if there is a case, even if it's a low impact or moderate impact case or a case that we originally don't sign a lot of value to, uh, you know, I'll usually jump into that case kind of towards the, the end part. And so if that, if that makes any sense, that's kind of how I prioritize my time, at least with cases, is I'm not working up the low-value cases myself. Right. But if they have to get the trial, I'll go and sit with an associate, uh, a younger lawyer, and make sure that they're not screwing up the case. Because for that client, that is their most important case. Absolutely. And do you have any kind of systems to ensure that the cases that you're not personally involved with are kind of working – the way they're supposed to be? Yes. So we have developed uh, kind of exhaustive checklists that, uh, you know, we use a program called Needles, and there are things that must be done on every single case. And that means that if there's a liability dispute, you have to take the cop depot, right, in case they don't show up for trial, which is pretty common sometimes. Um, if it's, if the, you know, if we have um, a situation where there are witnesses, you have to take the witness depositions. I mean, you just, I see lawyers that show up to trial sometimes and they don't, they don't even bother to call the witnesses. And so, wow. you know. Have you read the checklist manifesto? I haven't. Okay. I haven't. I haven't either. I've heard about it. Yeah. I've bought it and haven't read it. But one thing that, you know, I think it's when I was, I never even got my pilot's license, but when I started taking some flying lessons and got into aviation, you know, I realized that you know, pilots, no matter how many times they've flown the plane, a professional pilot will go through the checklist before, you know, they'll do the, before further their pre-trip inspection, they check things off. Before they take off, they check things off. When they're landing, they go through the checklist. If something goes wrong, what do I do as a reminder? And, and these are professionals, and the airline pilots still do it. And then, you know, doctors don't like doing it, but there's studies that show when they force doctors to go through checklists on surgeries, bad outcomes went way down. And, 
you know, I think lawyers a lot of times want to say, well, you know, I'm a lawyer. This is an art, not a science. It's not McDonald's making a burger. I don't need to go through checklists. And I know my firm, you know, that's fine. But if you want to work here, you have to follow the checklist because that's how we make sure we don't screw up. Well, that's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are certain things that are just imperative, you know, uh, getting the crash uh, or the the crash estimates from the body shops show us so much damage that you can't see with the eye. I tried a case a few months ago where there was barely any visible damage, but you took off the uh, the over bumper, and there was a ton of damage to the under bumper and the under damper uh, under bumper assembly. Um, when you looked at the estimate, there was actually frame damage that had occurred. That's not something you could have ever uh, been able to talk about a trial if you didn't have the body shop estimates. The other good thing about systems is when you just kind of automatically do all the little things, then you can really focus on the big things instead of always worried about, oh, wait, what about this? What did I get that estimate? Well, oh, crap, we have 15 days till the discovery deadline. Do we need to go depose that cop? No, it's, right. it's the system takes care of that, and then you can think of the big things like, you know, how did this affect my client? Who can talk about this? Go to their house, spend time with them. It, it actually, once you embrace the checklist uh, method, it really frees you up to use your creativity. It's, it's uh, not what people think originally when they resist it, but it really does work. Well, and the, and the other thing is that, you know, like in your firm, Mike, you've got a lot of lawyers, and, and you have a certain amount of success because of your methodologies, the way that you've done things in, in your practice and the way that you, you approach cases. And what lawyers don't understand when they come work for you and sometimes when they come work for me is, you know, they, they think that they're going to come to a law firm and say, I'm going to be kind of my own law firm within a law firm. Say, well, you're, you just, you know, you came here also for a reason. Try and learn a little bit from me, right? Try and un- understand that these systems have worked and they've, they brought me to the point of uh, being able to um, prosecute a case successfully because I followed these methodologies. Right, and you know we're making a promise. Like when we, you know, you're you to the public and and to other lawyers because you get referrals from other lawyers sure. and me to other lawyers when they refer a case that, you know, we're promising we're going to deliver a certain quality, and the only way we can ensure we have that quality is to do the steps that right. need to be done. And, and the way that I've had this conversation with lawyers, I'll say, hey, you know, McDonald's, for example, is one of the most successful, you know, fast food operations uh, in the world. Do you really think they just allow their client, you know, they hire an employee and say, oh, you've worked at other restaurants or fast food places for five or six years, so just go ahead and come behind the register and do your own thing. You know, that's not the way it works. I mean, they're delivering service or delivering you know, attitude, personality, they're delivering, you know, the way that you present the product, the way that you deliver the product, the way that you interact with customers, all of that is very systematic. And it's, 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 I don't want to compare making hamburgers to our law profession, but what I'm saying is that that systematic approach to case handling is what drives quality and it's what prevents issues from happening in your files. And you say it's, you know, the McDonald's has systems, but I guarantee you, you go to the French Laundry in Nap, you know, Yountville, California, where you're going to spend with wine, you know, a thousand bucks a person, easy. Yeah. Um, and when you go, if you go once, you go a year later, your oysters and pearl dish, which is a little oyster and caviar and stuff, is going to be exactly the same. And your That's plate's right. going to look exactly the same. And 
everybody gets served at the same time and the service is impeccable, that's not an accident. That's not telling cooks, well, you're a good cook, here's the recipe, do it. They are very regimented. I mean, it's so it's not just the low end, it's the high end, and that's how we get quality. And again, the lawyers at my firm that have embraced it have found that then that really frees them up to get creative, to do the special things, to get the great recoveries because the little things are getting done. That's right. So at some point, uh, you decided to go into advertising. Uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit because, you know, a lot of people I see, including myself, uh, try advertising. Uh, most of us don't succeed like you have. Uh, so tell me a little bit about, you know, what it takes to be successful with an advertising practice and kind of what the, the pain, curve, pain curve on the way to success is like. You, you know, I, I will tell you that what I thought worked in advertising four years ago is very different from my perspective today. And, and you know, alternatively, what I thought was great eight years ago, uh, I thought was very different from what I thought four years ago and certainly today. And so it's an evolving uh, type of, of perspective on advertising. Um, I think that there are that the barriers to entry in our profession have grown and grown and grown significantly for lots of different other reasons as well. But the era of the mega firm where you're having statewide players capture huge percentages of the market is now becoming the norm, uh, something you didn't really quite see as much. Uh, so you, you think know, if someone just puts up three or four billboards, it's going to be effective? It, it, and that's unfortunately no. And so what, what I would tell people is you want to be dominant in one, in one area of marketing. How do you distinguish yourself to, to your audience? And how do you become the go-to person in that audience? And so if you don't have the money... Uh, to spend, you know, go into a market, do a market uh, competitive analysis and say, okay, my average, the average PI lawyer in San Antonio, as an example, is spending 34 million bucks a year. How do I come into this market as a lawyer and compete with that? Well, you, unless you have that kind of money, you, you're not going to be able to compete uh, in, in a broad general market. But where you can compete is if you find your niche and if you find an area that is not being really pounced on uh, in, in a general market. And so if someone is out there listening to this podcast, right, and you're saying, okay, I've got maybe a $50,000 budget a year and I'm willing to spend it, how can I spend those dollars? Make yourself unique. So here, for example, there was a guy that didn't spend a lot of money, but he was very successful. I think he got prosecuted for other crimes, but... <laughs> You know, there was a guy, he was called the DWI dude. Yeah. And he had dreadlocks. And that was his deal, and that was his cool image. There's a guy out of Florida that I saw, and he's called the Jewish lawyer. And that's his deal. There's Simmons and Fletcher in uh, Houston. They're the Christian trial lawyers, the, and they, they advertise during Joel Olstein's program. That's it. And, uh, and they probably dominate that program. Yeah. Right? Uh, there's people that, that maybe want to appeal to a more conservative audience. And so maybe, you know, go to talk radio and say, you know what, 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 what are my competitors spending in talk radio for this particular segment time of the day and be dominant in that one area and own that one area. And you will build on that in the future little by little. But even once you do that, uh, what is the 
journey like from spending the money that you need to spend to dominate? Because if you're not dominant, you're just not going to get, you're just going to get the trash that nobody else wants, basically. Right. So it, there is a time period between you're going to start spending the money you need to build your brand awareness to start getting the cases to then getting the cases, then to having the cases actually fund, because, you know, cases are cash flow negative until they fund. What is that journey like? A painful one, right? Because, uh, it, you know, and let's just assume that you're very successful. You, you come in and you have a million dollars to spend and you sign up, you know, in, in a smaller market and you sign up a bunch of cases after spending a million dollars. You know, those cases are not going to come to fruition for a year and a half, two years. But in the meantime, you're also having to work those cases, which means having to invest in personnel and people and systems and case funding, anything from, you know, medical prepayments to an orthopedic surgeon to funding surgeries to paying rental cars to paying people to do all that work. And so it is a very, very, very painful uh, situation where where you're having to not only invest to get the cases but then invest in the cases and it's kind of like a double whammy so you really have to i guess build up reserves and then delay gratification and not pay yourself much of the money for a while that's right that's right and, and but the biggest the biggest trick to advertising in my view is di- how do you differentiate yourself to become top mind awareness in any one segment and and uh, that is really a very hard code to crack. You know, uh, how do you become the person that someone will call in case of an incident or accident? Uh, I learned a hard way a few years ago. I spent a lot of money on a focus group in one of my markets to determine uh, what was driving people, what were the top concerns for potential clients to call lawyers. And we spent like $50,000 on doing uh, focus groups, uh, testing uh, an, a message that we wanted to, to use and an image that we wanted to use and a brand that we wanted to use. And of course, that also meant testing competitors. And, and I'll give you an example of a competitor that we heard of a lot in a focus group, and he's passed away now, but Brian Longcar, the strong arm. And so people would say, well, we would call the, the strong arm and, we, and the the the, the folks running the, the focus group would say, great, what's the guy's name? They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to tell you their name. Well, how would you go about looking for the strong arm? Well, we just Google the strong arm, right? Uh, same thing for Jim Adler. They'll say, well, we, we would call the Texas Hammer. So why do you want to call the Texas Hammer? What are the attributes? Well, he looks tough on TV, <laughs> you know? Uh, and we'll say, well, what, what's Mr. Hammer's name, right? And, and it couldn't, 90% of them couldn't get, tell you their name, but they're going to call this lawyer, this professional, will handle this very important case for them. Uh, and so we realized, we, then we asked questions like, did you care, do you care if he's ever tried a case or what his results have been or whether he's board certified? You know, we wanted to understand what were important for people, and you would be surprised. All they cared about was recall. Recall was the number one reason people call lawyers and that would equate to top mind awareness and so if someone doesn't have the millions of dollars to dominate a market like san antonio houston uh, you'd recommend just finding a, a niche the, yeah that someone can try to dominate and maybe are there ways other than advertising that uh oh I yeah mean, like tv or our internet absolutely you know one of the best ways that you can be that you can generate cases uh and i see there's a fr- good very good friend of mine lawyer in dallas 
Every single time he touches a human being he doesn't know, he gives him a business card. I don't care if it's a waiter. Great service today. Here's my card. I'm an injury lawyer, and if you ever need anything, please give me a call. He does that daily, eight, ten times a day. He's been doing it for ten years. The guy's highly successful. Any cab he gets into, any Uber he gets into, he's always giving his card out. That adds up, builds up over the years. The second thing is becoming part of organizations, whether it's uh, you know becoming the go-to guy at a at a large church congregation, becoming the go-to guy at you know the boys and girls club of America or whatever the you know anytime you have a large congregation of people in a in a membership in some kind of society, if you establish yourself within that organization as a leader, as someone that people can come to for legal assistance, you'll be surprised how many folks in that community will not only go to you, but will also refer you friends, family members, et cetera. A lot of our listeners are uh, up-and-coming lawyers uh, who are building practices. What advice do you have as someone that's now climbed the ladder and, and reached the pinnacles of success? What advice do you have uh, for those who are coming up that want to get there too? You know, um, I, I have a something. There's a saying, people come to me and ask me this question all the time. How did you get to where you were? And... You know, what, and people always ask me, was it luck? Was it hard work? And, and my response is, you know, it's funny how the harder at work at something, the luckier I become. And there is no substitution for hard work. And there is absolutely no substitution for putting in the hours, putting in, uh, the, you know, the, the effort into becoming great. If you become great, if you, if you love what you do, and if you're good at it, success will follow. And I don't think it's luck because for every case where you and I have gotten lucky on a case, we've also had a number of cases where we had bad things happen on a case and we had to get bruised and bloodied and dirty and just get back up and get right back out there and do it again. Yeah. You, there is no case without fleas. I don't care if you're representing a busload of nuns, all right? You're going to have problems uh, with that case. And, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Mike, I don't consider myself to be one of the smartest guys in the room. But I'll tell you that I will work my butt off, and I and if if we were to compare, I guarantee you that when I go to trial, I've outworked those lawyers, I've outprepared those lawyers um, more out of necessity because I'm things don't come to me easy. So I do have to spend a lot of time preparing, practicing, uh, putting in that grunt work to make sure that I can beat those opponents. And when I've worked on cases with you, I've seen the 1, 2, 3 a.m. emails that prove that that's true. Yeah. Well, Alex, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Um, Congratulations on all your success, and I hope our listeners can uh, take some of your wisdom and, and have great success themselves. Well, thank you, Mike. Really enjoyed it as well. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. Uh, I enjoyed my conversation with Alex Begum, and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. Uh, we love the support we're getting from the show. We love hearing from you all. So if you guys can just keep con- contacting us via email at podcast at triallawyernation.com or contact us on our Facebook page. You know, Tell us what your favorite episode was, how you heard about us, topics you want to hear more about, or guests you'd like us to have on the show. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? 
If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.